electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner on day 127 of the coronavirus crisis tonight. New questions about the pace of reopening the country. The daily death toll will nearly double by June. A leaked memo leads to new questions about whether we're making the right decision. Unfortunately, the decline is not as steep as the incline. Is the country really ready to reopen for business? Also tonight. There's just so much on the line for football. Big changes for the NFL. A first glimpse tonight into what pro sports will look like. And the big question for anyone with children. Will there be camp this summer? This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, begins right now. Here's Scott Wapner. And it's good to have you with us on this Monday night, a day when stocks staged a late-day reversal to close higher. Let's take our first look this evening at futures, although it is early, they are slightly lower across the board. The Dow, as I said, wiping out a 360-point loss to end slightly higher. The S&P 500 with a similar story, finishing in the black today. And the Nasdaq rising more than 1% on the day. Big tech leading the way again as Netflix, Microsoft, Apple and Facebook all posted solid gains today. Our big question here tonight, is the coronavirus crisis about to get a lot worse, just as states are preparing to reopen more of them. The Federal Emergency Management Agency and the CDC working on worst-case scenario plans that show deaths from COVID-19 hitting 3,000 a day by June if social distancing is relaxed. Let's bring in now CNBC contributor, the former FDA chief, Scott Gottlieb. Dr. Gottlieb, it's good to have you with us. Thanks for being here. Thanks. That number of potential deaths, uh, double the number now. Johns Hopkins, which provides that model, says it shouldn't be taken as a forecast. Nonetheless, it is potentially alarming. What is your reaction tonight? Well, this came out of a lab at Hopkins. The CDC doesn't actually do their own modeling. They have a handful of modelers on staff. They commission models from outside academic groups. One of them is the Hopkins group that's on commission to this particular group within FEMA. And this was a model they produced with a set of assumptions that CDC gave them that are unclear. We don't know exactly what assumptions they gave them, but we presume that the assumptions were some relaxation or perhaps a lot of relaxation of the mitigation steps through the month of May and what that would look like. And the model, in fact, showed an increase in the number of cases of new infections and an increase in deaths. We know that the cases are going to go up over the course of May as we relax these social restrictions. Um, We're really pressed this month because the economic impact of those mitigation steps are having a profound impact on people's lives and on public health. So governors are under a lot of pressure to start relaxing those restrictions. But we know that cases are going to go up. And I think the challenge right now is they're going up up off of a high baseline. 
Right now, we have a pretty high amount of spread across the country. I think many of us felt that we would have had the cases down to lower levels by now, and we just haven't achieved that. Based on these numbers that we're talking about this evening, is it time, Dr. Gottlieb, to slow down some of these reopens? Well, I think there's a way to do this responsibly and do this in a gradual fashion where you try to uh, maximize activities. They're going to give people a sense of normalcy back about their lives and also maximize the economic gains that are achieved in terms of what you're opening. You have to look carefully at what you're opening and try to maximize the economic impact of those um, activities. But do it in a way that's gradual and do it in a way that you're protecting the people who are most vulnerable. And the people who end up being most vulnerable are those who are from disadvantaged environments where they can't naturally social distance, people who have to take mass transit, who live in crowded housing situations, and people who work in conditions where you can't social distance. So that's why you see the outbreaks in the meatpacking plants and the warehouses. We have to get protective gear to those people and allow them to take steps in the workplace that's going to reduce the spread. If we can effectively target resources to the people who are most at risk of contracting this infection um, and help the people who are most vulnerable to it and help them continue to socially isolate as long as possible, we could potentially mitigate the impact of reopening. But the reopening is going to increase the number of cases. We have to expect that the new normal now is going to be continued spread of this virus. And we have to bake in assumptions and put in place conditions to try to protect as many people as possible. In fact, I want to quote from you in The Wall Street Journal where you say the reality is stark. Continuing spread at something near current levels may become the cruel new normal, you say, and that hospitals and public health systems will have to contend with persistent disease and death. Has your own view worsened? Dr. Gottlieb, I asked you about your level of optimism last week. It sounded as though you were growing more optimistic. These words don't sound the same. Well, I'm optimistic that we're going to have a technological inflection point in this epidemic, hopefully before the fall, in terms of new treatments and the availability of vaccines that can be deployed in an experimental setting in the fall. I think what I'm pessimistic about is that heading into the month of May, I felt, and I think many others felt, that we would have um, the virus more under control, that we would have brought the number of new cases down more. What What we've seen is persistent spread for about 30 days now, at around 30,000 new cases a day and 2,000 deaths. Um, That's a lot. And the slope of the curve down has been relatively flat for about a month. I think many of us expected the mitigation to have a more profound impact. Remember, the mitigation, the intention of those steps was to keep the hospital system from becoming overwhelmed, to flatten the curve. And it was very effective at doing that. But we also expected it to bring down the rate of new infection. And it hasn't done that nearly as much as I think many of us, including me, expected. And why should we think that is? I think it was leaky. I think that we, when we implemented it, we didn't implement it in as stringent a way as other countries. And so when we looked at the experience in China, certainly, and even the experience in Europe, where they started to see gradual declines earlier, our experience just wasn't the same. And a lot of the modeling, that IHME model that the White House pays a lot of attention to, as well as other groups, A lot of that modeling was built off of the assumptions from the Chinese experience. And the Chinese experience was an epidemic that went up very quickly, but came down very quickly. And the slope of our downward curve has been largely flat. You worry that as we reopen more states, as we're going to do this week and in subsequent weeks, that we're going to have to shut down again? Well, I certainly hope not. I think that we're going to be hard-pressed to do that again. I'm not sure we can go through this twice. I think what you're more likely to see 
is a series of outbreaks in cities and cities taking individual mitigation steps to control spread within their local regions. But if history is any guide, what we've seen historically is that cities are very reluctant to go first. Seattle should have shut their economy down weeks before they decided to do it. And it was only after San Francisco took some pretty bold steps that other states and other cities began to follow. And so I think it's going to be hard for that next city that has an outbreak that should shut down aspects of their local economy to mitigate the risk to go ahead and take those steps. But that's ultimately what's going to have to happen. We're going to have rolling outbreaks in this country. This is going to become a fact of life. We need to figure out how to have a functional economy and how to have some sense of normalcy about our lives against a backdrop where there's going to be increased risk until we get to better therapeutics and eventually a vaccine. I think we'll have that technology. I think we'll have it sooner than we thought at the outset. But it's still going to take some time. Let me ask you about this new study out of China tonight that I know you've seen evidence of some immunity in patients who have recovered, in fact, from COVID-19. What do we know about that? That's right. These were studies that looked at antibody levels as well as um, T cells, so this cellular immunity. Um, and there is indication, which we knew all along, that after you recover from coronavirus, from COVID-19, you're going to have some immunity from reinfection. It's going to be variable in patients. Some patients, it will last longer than others. For some, they might not have fully protective immunity and they might be able to get reinfected. But I think for most people, you can assume that after you recover from COVID-19, there's going to be a period of time where you have protective immunity. It might last six months. It might last a year. It's not going to be indefinite. It's not like measles or chickenpox, where once you get it, you can't get it again. But you're going to have residual immunity. And, you know, at the end of this epidemic, there will be cities like New York where upwards of 20 percent or more of the population will probably have been infected. And so that will slow the rate of transmission. It won't won't stop it completely. We won't have herd immunity, but it will slow the rate of transmission in those hotspot cities. You said something interesting today I want to discuss with you now. You said of those antibody tests, I wouldn't put any stock in any single result on those testing. Quite frankly, if it was me, I'd repeat it three times. Why so? Well, I'd repeat it at least twice because the tests have a low specificity for a test that's, that's predicting a low probability event, and that low probability event being whether or not you have antibodies. And so you get a high error rate. You get a high false positive rate that could be as high as 30% with some of these tests, some of the tests that are actually authorized by the FDA. But if you repeat the test twice and you have a positive result on two tests, that dramatically increases what we call the positive predictive value of the test. It increases the likelihood that that positive result is, in fact, true. I know the tests are expensive. They're about $100, a little less, depending on where you get it. Um, But if you were going to take that test and actually rely on a result and you had a positive result and you wanted that to give you a sense of security that you could engage in activity that was a little bit riskier in terms of traveling and interacting with people... I'd want to be pretty sure. And if to get pretty sure, you want to have two positive results. President said last evening he expects a vaccine by the end of the year. I'm wondering if you think that's truly realistic. And there's one thing of having a vaccine and then the other is being able to actually use it because you've tested it enough. When can we realistically expect the usage of a vaccine in this country, do you think? Well, I I think we're going to have the vaccine available um, in millions of doses in the fall from multiple manufacturers, hopefully. I mean, if if all goes well, we'll have multiple manufacturers here in the U.S. that will have vaccine available in millions of doses. 
um, deployable for clinical studies. And we were likely to use these if we do have outbreaks in the fall in large American cities is in the setting of large studies where we deploy the vaccine to effectively try to ring fence the infection, but also evaluate whether it's safe and effective for mass inoculation of the population. So you might see a situation where literally we'll have clinical trials where there'll be hundreds of thousands or certainly tens of thousands of patients enrolled in those clinical studies inside a city. And what you'll do is you'll sequentially vaccinate different portions of the population and see if time that you got the vaccination affected your likelihood of coming down with COVID-19. That's a way to evaluate whether or not it's working. But I do think that the vaccines will be available to be deployed experimentally in the fall, but we're not going to have them fully cleared from clinical trials till 2021. Um, you're going to want to be really sure that these vaccines are safe before you're going to mass inoculate, not just the U.S. population, but really the global population. Dr. Gottlieb, do me a favor, stay with me for a moment. I want to continue our conversation about the cost of reopening and how these life and death decisions are going to be made. Joining us now is the former New Jersey governor, Christine Todd Whitman. She is president of the Whitman Strategy Group. Governor, it's good to have you on our program. Thank you for being here. Good to be with you, Scott. How are you thinking about this? If you're still sitting in a state house around the country, how should you be thinking about it? Well, right now I'd be a little frustrated because I'd like to hear a consistent message that uh, those protocols that were put out at the federal level are things that we should be observing. I'd want to know a little bit. I certainly want more testing. We've got to know more about the knock-on effect, too, as to what happens to people afterwards. And I'd love to hear from the doctor about this, because you've seen a couple of studies that say young, youngish, anybody's young for me, but I mean, 40 to 50-year-olds are suddenly having strokes after having even mild cases of uh, COVID-19, and that uh, there are things like frostbitten toes, it feels like, apparently, on some of them. So there's a the problem you have here is people have to understand this is serious. It's not that governors want to close the economies down. They don't. They care terribly about their people. But it's very hard to try to open when you have the president saying you shouldn't open until you've had two full weeks of a drop in cases or at least a leveling out. But on the other hand, saying the protesters should go out and protest. And so that makes it extremely difficult for governors and mayors. It's not just the governors and mayors are doing things, too. Um, to try to do this sequentially in a safe way. Everybody wants to reopen the economy. There are ways to do that, but it has to be done carefully because I think a rebound of this in the fall, as we keep hearing we're going to have, but if it, if it comes back really big and hard, that's going to be even worse for recovery, economic recovery. At the end of the day, you're doing, in a sense, a cost-benefit analysis here. Are you not? You're thinking about the way to reopen your economy while protecting your citizens. You can certainly understand the frustration among some and certainly the need of all to want to get back to work. Oh, absolutely. Without question, it's one of those tougher things you do. Anytime you set these kinds of standards, insurance companies do it all the time. What's a life worth? You know, how much do you pay if you're beyond a certain age? That kind of thing. This is very difficult. And But the most important thing that most of these governors and mayors want to do is make sure that their citizens are going to be safe. They want to get the economy back. They know it. They have a very personal relationship with their citizens. It's different than when you go to Washington and you're way far away from them. Um, everybody knows where you are when you heard the governor or mayor and you care. They, everybody cares. People, I'm not saying people in Washington don't care, but the point here is that it would be really helpful if everybody were on the same page because they have confidence in what they're hearing from Washington. 
because Washington has the greater resources. Washington has the best ability to do the testing and to do to get these things out into market and make it happen. And also, they need the ability to test. It's not just some cotton swab you stick in your mouth and anybody can do it. That's not how it works. And so um, they need to have more protective gear. They need to know their hospitals are going to be ready should there be a second wave, as bad as the first wave. We need to know more, and people have to have confidence in what they're hearing is the truth. You uh, mentioned the, uh, the doctor uh, who I was with uh, before you joined the conversation. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and do this and, and ask the doctor a question so that you can hear the answer, because Dr. Gottlieb, right. as, as the governor was discussing, there, there are uh, risks here, uh, clearly. There are stories that are horrifying about younger people who are, are suffering strokes, um, other issues that, that they're having as well. Discuss the risks that we're going to have to face. This is time to be truthful with the American people about the risks that we are going to face as a society of reopening our economies, which everybody wants to do when the time is right. Well, look, this is a fearsome pathogen. We've known this all along. Um, we've suspected that the case fatality rate, the percentage of people who succumb to this infection, is about 1%. Um, it's probably going to settle out there. And the governor mentioned people who are having strokes. We know that this virus seems to be activating platelets and increasing people's clotting in their blood. It creates a hypercoagulable state, what we call a hypercoagulable state. People are having blood clots and they're having strokes. And in fact, what we now believe is some of the patients who are decompensating very rapidly in the hospital and requiring urgent intubation, um, they were needing to be put on ventilators very urgently. Some proportion of them were probably having blood clots to their lungs, and we weren't initially recognizing that. And so we're learning a lot about this virus, and the more we learn about it, we find out it's more contagious, um, really more optimized to spread in the human population, and more dangerous. Governor mentioned uh, a fears as well that we're going to be right back here in the fall when we have a, a resurgence of, of, of this virus. I mean, how big of a concern is that? And is it at this point a formality? It's just a matter of how bad it will be, Dr. Gottlieb. I think that's one of the big concerns here is that what happens is we reopen against a backdrop where there still is a lot of spread. We never really snuff this out. We continue to have spread all through the summer. Perhaps July and August are a backstop against some of the spread, but we still have new cases. It still grows. And you have this slow simmer through the entire summer. And then when you come back in the fall, you have this combustion. You have a rapid acceleration in cases when schools are back in session and residential college campuses and people are back at work and maybe letting their guard down a little bit more. Um, if we don't get rid of this more in terms of the spread in the background, it creates a really dangerous condition for the fall especially as we collide with flu season. Dr. Gottlieb, I appreciate your time as always. Governor, I hope you got the answers to your questions. I did. Thank you very much for asking them. It's good having you you with us. Thanks a lot. Look forward to having you both back soon. Thanks to you both. And there is much more ahead tonight on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Most airline passengers will be told they must wear masks when they fly. But next tonight, one airline's move to take safety a step further, and they want you to pay for it. Plus, a look at what this fall will bring for the National Football League. And is your kid going to camp this summer? If so, it won't look like it did last year. Before the break, images from around this country on day 127 of this global pandemic.
on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back on day 127 of this crisis. Here is a look tonight at some more headlines on the virus. Carnival Cruise Lines will resume some service from Florida and Texas on August 1st, making it the first major cruise operator to restart operations. California Governor Gavin Newsom will allow some retail businesses in that state to begin limited reopening as early as this Friday. And New Jersey keeping all of its schools closed for the rest of the academic year. McDonald's steps up to say thank you to nurses, doctors and first responders, helping feed millions of workers on the COVID-19 front line. Here's CMO Morgan Flatley on how that burger chain is stepping up tonight. We've given away seven million thank you meals, and that's you know, close to $40 million in, in value. So it's just incredible to think about. There was a great story in, I think, in Rochester, a team of McDonald's workers delivered um, a whole bunch of thank you meals to nurses at a medical center. And just the response, you know, from the head nurse was, by sustaining us, you're helping us sustain many of these very sick patients. Personally, I have just been, you know, really in awe at how the entire McDonald's system has rallied behind this idea and has just, you know, without hesitation, given away millions and millions of meals to thank our first responders. That was McDonald's chief marketing officer Morgan Flatley tonight. By the way, the free meals run through tomorrow. Well, big changes are coming once Americans begin flying again. Wearing masks is probably just the beginning. Frontier Airlines announcing today passengers are now allowed to buy an empty seat in an attempt to social distance. CNBC airline reporter Phil LeBeau has the CEO of Frontier Airlines, Barry Biffle, this evening. Phil? Scott, thank you. Barry joins us from Denver International Airport, which is the hub airport, the home airport for Frontier Airlines. Barry, we want to talk about the more room seats, the purchasing of an empty seat in just a little bit. But first, give me a sense of what you're seeing in terms of demand right now. It bottomed out, what, a couple weeks ago? Where do things stand right now? Sure, sure. Thanks for having us on, Bill and and Scott. Um, So we bottomed out a few weeks ago. Uh, To put things in perspective, prior to this, we would carry about 80,000 passengers a day. And we got down to about 3,000 passengers a day just a few weeks ago. Um, But I'm really pleased. Yesterday and now again today, we're going to carry over 10,000 passengers. So you're obviously seeing at least a little bit of an uptick. It's hard to call it a rebound at this point. But let's talk about the more room seat uh, promotion, if you will. And maybe promotion is not the right word. Uh, But the bottom line is this. If I'm flying on Frontier and I want to make sure that there's nobody sitting next to me, I can buy the next seat for $39. Already, and you've probably seen some of this already, Barry, there's people on social media saying, wait a second, you're putting a price on safety. Why not just give these seats away or, or guarantee that the middle seat is empty? So, so let, let's, let's take a step back. So over the six weeks ago, we started cleaning our aircraft and fogging our aircraft with this new process that kills the, the virus on contact. 
We introduced our, our employees wearing masks uh, several weeks ago. We introduced a health certification for all of our customers to verify they haven't had symptoms and no one them been around in the last 14 days have. And now we just recently, uh, last week, announced that we would require all customers to wear facial coverings. And we believe that those are the things that we need to do, and that's the recipe to keep you safe. Uh, but we've talked to customers, and many people have you know, more concerns and some anxiety, and so they want even more you know, kind of peace of mind. And so we introduced this product uh, to guarantee the middle seat. And so we don't believe this is what you need to be safe, uh, but it's just one more thing that we can do uh, to put people's mind at ease. Have you had pushback from customers? I mean, have you had customers who have said, come on, really, $39 to guarantee an empty seat? Um, actually, we haven't had, had pushback at all. In fact, every time we've introduced more things, uh, we've seen an overwhelming response. We, we've seen some of the negatives, uh, but we've got people coming in going, oh, how do I guarantee this? Because we're the first airline many people have suggested and many people have gotten uh, open seats around them. Um, but no one's guaranteeing that, uh, especially out into the future. And this guarantees them, so it gives them peace of mind. And so for $39, on top of our very low fares to begin with, uh, you'll still spend less money than you will on most of the big guys. Barry, you saw some of the comments from Warren Buffett over the weekend. He essentially said, look, the airline business is dead in the water three to five years. That's how long he thinks it'll take until we see the, the level of traffic that we saw in 2019. Do you disagree with what he's saying? Do you think that it'll take less than three years for you to get back to where you were last year? Well, I think he said he hoped he was wrong, and I, I hope he's wrong as well. But but I understand some of his moves. And, and look, international long-haul travel is probably not coming back for a while. Uh, business travel will, as a segment will probably be the last segment to, uh, to come back. So I understand, and I don't envy those, those big carriers in the position they're in. But I will make two points. One, he did say don't bet, on, bet against America, and I agree with that. And that's what Frontier and our people are all about. And the second thing is, for decades – Warren Buffett has talked about building a sustainable, durable advantage. And Frontier went into this with the lowest cost in the industry. And we believe that net of, net of interest and, and everything else, when we come out, we'll have an even greater cost advantage versus our, our peers. And so we feel really good about our advantage, our sustainable, durable advantage. And so I think that Warren Buffett would agree that our positioning is a little different than maybe some of those other carriers. Barry, paint a picture for me of Denver International Airport. And by that, I mean... What do you see when you're walking around on the inside? Is everybody wearing a mask? Because one of the, feed, the points that I've heard back from some people is, look, I'll wear a mask on an airplane, but I'm not going to walk around in an airport. I'm not going to go through security with a mask. Are you seeing people complying with wearing a mask, or is it yeah, a little bit here, a little bit there, and then when they get on the plane, they put on the mask? So, so, so you've got to remember Colorado was one of the states that, that got hit early, so I think there's probably a little bit better participation in these types of measures. Um, we haven't started the mask program. It starts uh, for Frontier on Friday, the face coverings. Uh, but Denver International itself is now going to require it to enter the airport starting Wednesday. So we'll see what happens. But I will tell you, Phil, um, you see the majority of people have masks on right now. And, and I think it's just people have figured it out. It's the smart thing to do. And if we're going to open the country back up, I mean, I, I just saw the segment on, on Dr. Gottlieb just earlier. And if we're going to open it back up, and, and not social distance as much, then everybody needs to have a facial covering on. I think it's a small sacrifice for us all to turn the economy back on and keep everyone safe at the same time. Scott? Barry, I have a question for you quickly, and I thank you for being here this evening. Why not just leave the middle seats empty until there's a vaccine, just to make sure that everybody has the same uh, treatment as it relates to their health and their, and their well-being? Well, originally we didn't think we would, would need to do any of these. We think that with the steps that we've taken... Uh, that you're safe on Frontier. 
Uh, this is just one more way to, to offer, offer an option. Uh, but look, if, if you want to block a third of the seats, that's going to cause airfares to rise. And, and I think, look, we believe you're safe. Um, and Scott, I welcome you. Come out. I'll, I'll fly with you tomorrow. You and I can sit next together as long as we're both got a face covering. I think it'll be just fine. So you think I'm fine sitting in a row of three people as long as we're all wearing face coverings? We're, our, our, our heads are literally a, a foot or a foot and a half to two feet at the most apart. I, I, I believe so. I believe so. If you're wearing a facial covering, um, one more little tip for you, and this has been something that's been out for years, make sure you turn the vent on right above you and, and, and put fresh air that's coming from a filtration system uh, in the filter, and that helps as well. Uh, but, yes, Scott would be safe. So, Phil, Scott, let's all go get on a plane. We'll do it tomorrow. I'll sit in the middle. So it, it'll work out. Barry, I appreciate you being here. Phil, thanks for bringing us this interview. You bet. Phil might have been referencing my own, my own social media commentary a little bit earlier, but that's neither here nor there. Here's what's coming up on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. NFL schedules due out soon. The Dolphins hinting at what stadium seating could look like. One insider on what fans should expect. Plus, if summer camps open at all this year, they're going to look very different. It's all coming up on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. The Miami Dolphins revealing plans on how they intend to maintain social distancing at Hard Rock Stadium once games kick off there again. Big changes unlikely this season for the NFL. Big changes are also coming for your kids' summer camp, if those camps open at all. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, continues. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. When billionaire Warren Buffett speaks, people tend to listen. Over the weekend at his Berkshire Hathaway annual shareholder meeting, Mr. Buffett gave his thoughts on the crisis and why he's not buying stocks right now. And I don't know whether today is a a great day to buy stocks. I know it will work out over 20 or 30 years. I don't know whether it'll work out over two years at all. The airline business, and I I may be wrong and I hope I'm wrong, but uh, I think it it changed in a very major way. We have not done anything because uh, we don't see anything that attractive to do. Now, that could change, you know, very quickly. If you say the, the day of investing in America 
is over, I would disagree quite violently. I think overall the banking system is not going to be the problem. But I'm not a, a, I wouldn't say that with 100% certainty. I am 100% uh, for taking care of the people that, that uh, really get hurt by something that they've got nothing to do with and, that, uh, and where it's, you know, who knows, who knows how long it lasts. Nothing can stop America when you get right down to it. And uh, it's been true all along. That's Warren Buffett tonight. Virginia Governor Ralph Northam outlining today what phase one of easing restrictions will look like in his state starting on May 15th. There will be plans to keep customers and workers separate at businesses. Conferences and trade shows will have new restrictions. Employers will be asked to add hand-washing breaks for workers. Virginia will see lower capacities for stores, restaurants, and gyms. Joining us now, Robin Farzad. He's the host of Public Radio's Full Disclosure podcast on NPR. He is, by the way, a Virginia resident as well. Robin, it's good to have you here tonight. How are you, Scott? I'm well. You ready? Ready for May 15th? I'm- I'm ready. You know, it's been 11 years since I've been on CNBC, so I just want to say I missed you guys. Oh, I can't believe it's been, been so that long. long. We're grateful to have you back. I'm, 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 glad, I'm, I'm glad we're doing this. Seriously, though, are, are residents ready? Put me on the ground in Virginia. What's the temperature? Uh, gorgeous weather out, but I don't think people are ready for it. I don't think people, you know, give you a, a basic thing that uh, uh, today the scene at the closest Starbucks to me by the University of Richmond is everybody wearing face masks, confused that there was a sign up there that we're going to open up again. No, you have to use the app. Uh, you know, is there social distancing? Why are you moving all the, the, the chairs and the couches outside the Starbucks? And I talk to small business owners everywhere from uh, payroll protection to uh, hard uh, instructions on what is and what isn't social distancing. There's a tremendous amount of confusion ahead of May 15th or even June. We, we talked with Governor Whitman uh, earlier and even Dr. Gottlieb, that this incredible balance that these states are having to deal with, wanting to let businesses get back in business. People need to work and people need to be safe. How is that balance playing out in the state? You have everybody in small business levels trying any way they can. I mean, I know a great Indian restaurant, the guy is doing batch processing with his van, practically announcing it from rooftops. I'll show up at your neighborhood, put in your order. I'll bend over backwards for you guys to buy from me. Contactless, uh, you know, uh, pick up outside the curb. Uh, we'll have our hours open, all manner of specials. And even then, they're only making up a fraction of the revenue it needs. Uh, rent was due a couple of days ago. And so on the one hand, they're extremely desperate to open up in full. On the other hand, they know that nobody's going to walk into a packed restaurant or a packed movie theater and uh, a new normal, I know that's been thrown around a lot, is, is, is definitely a long ways off. I love one of the anecdotes you have in your notes about Starbucks and the drive through. And I guess other restaurants may have to deal with that as more states start to legitimately reopen. Long lines of cars because you can't necessarily come in the store and thus you have a, a traffic issue. Maybe intersections are blocked. It's literally something to consider that we otherwise wouldn't have thought about. Yes, you go to any Starbucks with a drive-thru and think about how these guys were laughed at a couple of years ago or a Panera. That you're actually going to look at drive-thru. Now it's the indispensable part of the business. I counted 26 cars at the Starbucks on Glenside and I-64 this morning. And it was thwarting everybody else who wanted to enter that shopping center, not that anything else was open. And so this has caused a rethink at Starbucks. Do we not only socially distance our cafes, but what do we do in terms of inducing or encouraging app orders or less contact between 
the barista level, the bar level people and the customers coming in. I think that's just one business that happens to be nimble that is really uh, uh, struggling to reinvent in a matter of weeks. Good having you tonight. You come back sooner next time, okay? Likewise. Thank you, Scott. All right. That's Robin Farzad. He's the host of Public Radio's Full Disclosure. The NFL set to announce the fall, the full 2020 schedule this week. For more on how football and other sports leagues will tackle the pandemic is Mark Gannis. He is the president of Sports Corp, a leading sports business consulting firm. Mark's good to have you here. Great to see you, Scott. Are you surprised that the league is steadfast in sticking to its, its start date and the Super Bowl? No, not, not the least bit surprised. Uh, you're going to see the league put out its schedule this week. Everyone knows that that's really subject to what the public health issues, testing and other uh, health matters uh, that happen between now and then take place. Uh, but it's really important to get the information out. It's important for the fans to have something to look forward to. And if things go reasonably well between now and the end of the summer, come September, we'll have a full slate of National Football League games on. A lot of people are, are certainly hoping for that. Bear with me one second, Mark. I have some breaking news. I want to get back to our Phil LeBeau, who has news regarding United Airlines. Phil? Um, Scott, I'm taking a look at a memo that was just uh, sent out to all management and administrative employees uh, at United Airlines, and it essentially outlines the fact that the company is planning to cut at least, at least 30 percent of its management and administrative jobs come October 1st. Remember, because of the CARES Act and the money that was given to airlines as part of uh, through the Treasury Department, one of the stipulations was that there could be no major layoffs, no mass layoffs at any of the airlines that received money, including United Airlines, through September 30th. But now we know that United is saying, and they have been talking about this, that they will need to be a smaller airline in so many different ways. And that includes management and administrative jobs. So, again, the company telling employees that at least 30 percent of its management and administrative jobs will be eliminated starting October 1st. Scott? uh, Interesting, sobering news there, Phil. Thank you. That's Phil LeBeau with that breaking news regarding United Airlines. Let's get back to our conversation with Mark Gannis as we look ahead to what is hopefully an on-time NFL season. We heard today, Mark, from the Miami Dolphins. They talked today about how the stadium may look moving forward, going from some 65,000 fans, maybe down to 15. You've done a lot of stadium deals in your day. Take us inside the stadium. How is the experience going to be for fans, if, if there are fans at all? Well, uh, the experience is going to be different, especially for this year. NFL, baseball, if if we can get basketball and hockey, but the experience is going to be uh, quite different. First thing is that we're going to have social distancing. That will require a lower capacity in the buildings. We're probably going to be asking the at-risk fans not to come to the games. Uh, You know, those are are well-known now. Uh, If you're uncomfortable, also don't come. We're going to see uh, that people are going to be monitored, their temperatures in one form or another as they come into the building. You know, we had, Scott, we had something like this after 9-11, where there was a great fear of whether sports facilities and NFL stadiums were going to be subject to terrorist attacks. So we have to both harden the facilities and provide a perception of safety. So the actual safety and perception of safety, both of those are going to need to be done by NFL teams, all the sports leagues, and that's likely to start with, at least if baseball comes back, no spectators, then add some and add some and add some, 
And maybe by the time we get to September, we're going to be in a position where we can have a fairly robust number of people in the stands. Mark, how are the teams going to make up for the lost revenue? Lower ticket sales, lower parking, concessions, merchandise, everything that goes into the pot at the end of the day. How do they make up for that? They don't make up for it, Scott. It's going to be this. This is an aberration year. It's going to be one of those reasons why you have sound financial ownership and sound financial uh, debt restrictions and things like that, because this is one of those situations where everyone is going to lose money. One of the things that that were the NFL and, and the NBA and National Hockey League, they have in their deal with the players that roughly 50 percent of the revenues go to the players. If those revenues go down, that means the salary caps uh, will go down either this season or next season. But no, no, no way around it. The owners and the leagues, the industries are going to lose a great deal of money this year. It's a trillion dollar industry. Uh, and, and if we just have to get back on the field, not just for the business, not just for the other people who work at it, but we have to get back there to, so there can be a sense of little something close to normalcy uh, in the lives of, of Americans who are so used to having sports uh, to, to cheer on and talk about. I got to be real quick, but does this do anything to valuations of teams? Sure, absolutely. Uh, we're going to be looking at this, that it's it's very likely to have uh, a, a, certainly an impact on the growth of valuations of most of the sports leagues. Uh, and in some cases, we're going to see that it's going to have some some reductions. And you had a guy, Mark Lasry, on at the end of last week. He you, you know, you did a great job by getting the NBA's uh, take that they want to come back. Following your interview, LeBron James came out and said the players want to come back. All of those things are so important so that we can get some momentum building to do it, do it safely with appropriate testing. Need something to cheer about. That's for certain. Mark Yannis, I appreciate your time as always. Thank you for being here. All right. That's Mark, CEO of Sports Corp. All right. More of this CNBC special report. Markets in turmoil is coming up next. Your child already missed several months of school. Are they about to miss camp? And if they can go, what will it look like? The answer, very different. Before the break, images from around the world on the 127th day of this global pandemic. Welcome back, New Jersey, the latest state to announce schools will be closed for the rest of the academic year. Now, what about day and sleepaway camp this summer? Expect big changes if camps are able to open at all. Tom Rosenberg is the president and CEO of the American Camp Association. Mr. Rosenberg, it's good to have you on. It's funny. I just asked my son's camp yesterday what what we're going to do this summer. They said they're waiting to hear from you. What are you telling camps? Well, I'm telling camps that we have some planning to do. We've been uh, awaiting guidance from the Centers for Disease Control and from state boards of health that tell us uh, what the rules will be for the COVID-19 summer that's coming up. 
But I expect to see all kinds of summer experiences, like a continuum of camp, really. Uh, before, you know, it's really important that we have camp this summer. Before the pandemic even began, Gen Z kids really had skyrocketing depression and anxiety. And then comes COVID-19. And really, if you think about it, Scott, there are two words in social distance, right? First, as, pa as parents, we had to help our kids learn to distance themselves from their friends. And then now, as parents, we're watching our kids starve themselves you know, socially and emotionally from their own identity. So that's where we come in at camp, right? We're trying to create connections. We're trying to create, help them reconnect with each other. We're trying to help them reconnect to adults and to themselves. So this summer, camp will look different. It may be even virtual for some, but those connections are going to happen. Yeah. And children will have joyful experiences that help them learn and grow with each other. And as a dad myself, like you, I can't wait. No, I, believe me, I, I want my kids to go to, to go to camp as much as they want to. I know how much they're, they're looking forward to it. But how do you guarantee their safety when they're there? Well, it's, it's a great question. Uh, you know, as camp directors, I, as a camp director myself for many years, I know that the only way to engage and educate young people is if they feel emotionally and physically safe. And of course, if the parents don't feel that way either, you're in trouble. So we move very quickly to define what safety looks like in 2020. So we put together a, uh, an independent group of scientific experts to create best practices, really, for operating day and overnight camps in this COVID summer and beyond. And so basically, camp directors now um, will have resources to help them determine whether they can meet the standards that are being set by these scientific experts and by the CDC and by their state boards of health. Every camp is different, so we expect a wide range of decisions. Some are going to operate in traditional ways, and others will choose a new path. So, for example, we've already seen camps that are creating inspiring new programs or virtual programs for children who um, are not able to mm. attend camp because they're medically vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Not going to be the same for, for certain. Quickly, um, how are most camps off financially? Are, are, or is everybody reliant on year-to-year on -year cash flow for, for survival? Yeah, camps are uh, small businesses in general. Um, there are some large uh, not-for-profits and for-profit entities, but in general, camps are very much small businesses. So they are reliant on, on, on regular operations in order to thrive. We'll see what happens. Well, I know a lot of kids out there are, uh, are hopeful of going to camp this summer. Tom, I appreciate your time. Thank you. We're really hopeful. Thanks, Scott. Yep, you bet. That's Tom Rosenberg, American uh, Camp Association, joining us tonight. Let's get you through tonight's headlines right now, including big news from United Airlines. That's coming up next. On day 127 of the coronavirus pandemic, here are the latest headlines tonight. An internal memo shows United Airlines plans on cutting 30 percent of its management and administration jobs in October. The U.S. Treasury expects to borrow nearly $3 trillion this quarter to help prop up the economy. And J. Crew, the first major retailer during this outbreak to file for bankruptcy. Well, for all of us here at CNBC, I'm Scott Wapner. Check CNBC.com throughout the night for all the updates uh, on the virus. Don't forget about uh, our shows tomorrow. I'll see you at noon on the Halftime Report. American Greed is next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 